My name is Milo McLeod, and I'm a retired Forest Service archaeologist from the Lolo National Forest, and uh, I'm filling in for Sandy McFarland. I served as the forest archaeologist for the Lolo between 1975 and 2008, and for about 13 years I was zoned with the Bitterroot National Forest. So I also know the Bitterroot pretty well. My background, I received uh, my bachelor's degree in anthropology and history from the University of New Mexico in uh, 1972, and a graduate degree in anthropology from the University of Montana in 1984. And our panel today consists of Amy Miller, Tamara Stanley, and Chris Comer. And Amy is a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Montana and is working under the supervision of Dr. Kelly Dixon. Uh, she is working at Big Hole National Battlefield as a student and assists at the visitor center. Amy first became interested in anthropology by watching the History Channel, reading books, and visiting historic places. She became passionate about the Nez Perce National Historic Trail when she started working at the battlefield in the Youth, Youth Conservation Corps at age 16. She is from Wisdom, Montana, and currently lives between the Big Hole Valley and Missoula. Welcoming. Uh, Tamar is Executive Director for the Ravalli County Museum since 2007. Under her leadership, the Ravelli County Museum has grown from a small-town museum to an energetic hub of the community with a regional audience. She's led the professional development of the museum and the archives and is leading planning efforts for an even more robust and secure future. Tamar grew up in a family that spent family time together visiting museums and cultural sites across the country. She attended Hunter College in Manhattan and graduated from California State University at Chico with a BA in Humanities and History. And Tamar lives in Victor, Montana. Chris Comer is founder and president of the Bitterroot Cultural Heritage Trust. She has always been interested in history and received her BA in History from the University of Washington. In her professional life, she works to assist worthy nonprofit organizations build capacity often in conjunction with public land partners. She finds history and cultural heritage to be excellent tools for building capacity in organizations, communities, and for our public lands. And Chris lives in Hamilton, Montana. Okay, in my professional life, uh, when I worked for the Lolo, one of my first jobs beginning in 1977 was to locate the Lolo Trail on National Forest lands in Montana. And the Lolo Trail was a National Historic Landmark. And <coughs> like Traveler's Rest, it was designated a landmark in 1960. And when it was designated a landmark, nobody knew where it was. It was essentially a library exercise. The Lolo Trail went from Weeite, Montana, or Weeite, Idaho, to Lolo, Montana. And Traveler's Rest was in one section near the confluence of 
Lolo Creek, and the Bitterroot River. Fast forward to 1966 and the National Historic Preservation Act, and all of a sudden, properties that were National Historic Landmarks are also on, listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And all of a sudden, federal agencies need to account for their effects on properties listed on the National Register. Well, does the Lolo Trail even exist? The boundary at that time was a 10-mile wide corridor from Lolo, Montana to Weeye, Idaho. And I was tasked with going out and seeing if indeed it does exist. Well, we started with the Lewis and Clark maps, uh, John Mullins railroad survey maps of 1853, and lo and behold, we found that uh, there was extant sections of trail tread, there were peeled trees, there were associated archaeological sites, and lo and behold, the Lolo Trail did exist. Uh, the Lolo Trail was significant in American history for, obviously, for the Lewis and Clark expedition, but also miners, trappers. John Mullen went over the Lolo Trail in 1853, John Owen in the later 1850s, uh, and the Nez Perce War of 1877. I was involved with uh, creation of the Nez Perce National Historic Trail from the early 80s through the early uh, 1990s. And likewise, I was a member of the Montana Army National Guard. And in the late 80s and early 90s, we conducted what were called staff rides at Big Hole National Battlefield. And this was to train young officers in uh, using historic sites as a training tool in terms of logistics, tactics, strategy, and looking at uh, the Battle of the Big Hole of what went wrong, what went right, what could have done better. Later, in 1991, uh, I attended several sessions of the archaeological work at Big Hole National Battlefield. So, I'm somewhat familiar with the Nez Perce National Historic Trails. National Historic Trails are designated by the federal government. There are 19 National Historic Trails throughout the country. That include the Oregon Trail, the Mormon Pioneer Trail, the Selma, Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail, and these National Historic Trails are administered by the federal government with agencies such as the National Park Service, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, Army Corps of Engineers. The Nez Perce National Historic Trail is the only trail, a National Historic Trail, administered by the U.S. Forest Service. The Nez Perce National Historic Trail was added to the system in 1986. And the trail is to commemorate the Nez Perce War of 1877 and the trek of the Nez Perce from Wallawa Lake, or essentially Wallawa Lake, Oregon, to Bear Paw National Battlefield in uh, north central Montana. 
The trail travels through four states, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. It traverses four Forest Service regions, including Region 6, Region 1, Region 4, and Region 2. Interpretation for the Nez Perce National Historic Trail includes an auto tour, programs and exhibits at National Park Service and Forest Service facilities along the trail, such as Nez Perce National Historic Park in Lapway, Idaho, the Lolo Pass Visitor Center at Lolo Pass, Big Hole and Bear Paw National Battlefields. Some sections of the trail can, you can actually walk on portions of the Lolo Trail in Montana and Idaho, uh, Fort Fizzle, Big Hole and Bear Paw National Battlefields. Currently, the U.S. Forest Service maintains a website for the Nez Perce National Historic Trail. Uh, the Forest Service employs two full-time <coughs> administrators for the trail. This is Sandy McFarland in uh, Orofino, Idaho, and Roger Peterson, who resides in Missoula. If anyone has any questions or would like to pursue uh, interest in the Nez Perce Trail, I suggest that you contact uh, either Sandy or Roger. Uh, they do have a website. Just uh, Google Nez Perce National Historic Trail and you'll get all sorts of information. Any questions? Sir? You, you said you were uh, in, in charge of trying to determine whether there was actually a trail and so forth. What, what, uh, what sort of uh, things did you find that uh, helped you verify where the trail was located and uh, that sort of thing? Well, uh, let me say we started with uh, the Lewis and Clark map, the John Mullen 1853 map, the 1865 to Lacey map, and then superimposed these locations on a seven and a half minute quad, uh, USGS quad then went out to try and ground truth. And what's the difference between a game trail and a historic trail trade? Well, we wondered about this too. <laughs> and we found what we thought was historic trail tread, and some of it was actually three feet wide, pounded into the ground, and adjacent to the trail we would find numerous peeled ponderosa pines that the Indians would peel in the spring of the year to uh, extract the cambium layer, uh, where the trail would come down to uh, relatively flat ground such as Howard Creek. Uh, <clears throat> we would have uh, archaeological sites, campsites, and we felt pretty confident that indeed we did locate the extant portions of the Lolo Trail. And what I think that we're looking at, I mean, we would have two or three treads on the hillside. Uh, one here, one 20 feet up the hill, 30 feet up the hill, and it was a series of trails that crisscrossed and intertwined, essentially forming a trail network. What I think we were looking at was the last remnants of physical activity from the Nez Perce War of 1877, when 2,000 Nez Perce horses and 750 
Nez Perce came over the trail. They were not in single file. They were spread out across the hillside and developed two or three different trail treads. Two weeks later, General Howard came over with 500 soldiers and 300 horses. That leaves a pretty good imprint on the landscape, and I think that's what we're looking at. Any other questions? Can we hold questions until that 15 minute okay. period at the end? Why don't we turn it over to Amy? Or yeah. Chris? Me, Tamar. Or Tamar. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Milo, so much for introducing us and giving us that, that backstory. Um, so, um, thank you for welcoming me here today. This topic is near and dear to um, the Rural County Museum's heart because we're about to debut in May the opening of a brand new exhibit that's been in production, design, fabrication for three years, working very closely with the elders in that way and the other Nez Perce um, tribal consultants, the Nez Perce Nation. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, and all of the pieces that you'll hear today are really just um, facets of what will be introduced in, in May. Um, I'm going to take a mad dash through this um, piece. I was uh, reassigned um, to do the solid ports of the Bitterroot Valley, and it's a topic that is um, little known, along with the Nez Perce conflict. Um, so when this does debut, it'll be a, a really wonderful introduction to um, a story that is a real life story here in our own backyard. Um, so the sod forts of the Bitterroot Valley during the time of the Nez Perce War slash conflict slash flight. Um, in the 1870s, the Bitterroot Valley was still largely unsettled and the only major town site of any importance was Stevensville, which had grown up around the reconstruction of the Jesuit mission at St. Mary's. The original mission had been founded in 1841 and was commonly referred to as the Flathead Village at St. Mary's. It was located just west of Fort Owen on the uh, east shore of the Bitterroot River. In 1815, what has been termed Montana's first recorded real estate transaction, the Jesuits sold their holdings to Major Owen for a mere $250. Owen immediately made improvements on the grounds, and this included a grist mill and a sawmill, and turned the property into an active trading post that dealt mostly with the indigenous peoples, such as the Bitterroot Sailors, the Kootenai, the Honduras along with the occasional mountain man and fur trapper coming through. The well-fortified, there's Owen there, well-fortified with bastions, a cannon, and thick adobe walls, the fort was never used as a military outpost. So we don't have any extant pictures. Of course, we do have a few renderings um, and, and um, sketch sketches. Um, so what you'll see throughout the rest of this presentation um, are what we were able to call together from our archives at the museum. We have a vast archives um, along with photographic uh, inventory, but also we used as um, the primary resources to pull this presentation together is our four publications put out by the Bitterroot Valley Historical Society and their Bollock Museum, which are um, oral histories and narratives from people that um, remember the events. In fact, I think there's a couple here in this audience. I think I talked to one person yesterday who had heard from his grandmother about um, this event that we're talking about today. Now, wasn't that you, Robert? Didn't you have your grandmother tell you a little bit something about um, the the flight of the Nez person and being interactive with the 
the natives at the time and the settlers. Um, so by 1877, um, the fort had fallen into disrepair and Major Owen, who was suffering from dementia, had been forced to relinquish his holdings. An effort was made to shore up the walls so that the locals, who were worried about the approach of the non-treaty Nez Perce, would seek shelter within the confines of the old fort. A portion of the north wall had collapsed and green sod was cut by the civilians of Stevensville to replace the fallen adobes. The fort was dubbed Fort Brave because the people waiting at the siege there felt so secure between these sturdy adobe walls and uh, reinforced with sod. Two smaller communities south of Stevensville were located on Willow Creek, where the town of Corvallis is now located, and Scalpahoe, where Hamilton is situated today. Having no fortifications to rely upon, residents of these two fledgling communities decided to build temporary fortifications using sod from the surrounding fields. At the site of Fort Scalcohoe, a handful of early pioneers had already proved up their property and by 1871 had joined forces in order to build a continuous log fence that snaked around 1,100 acres of prime stockland. This enclosure was used primarily to keep everybody's cattle from straying off and others out, and it was known locally as the Big Corral. It occupied an area that now forms the entire south end plus a, a large portion of the east side of Hamilton. One of the partners of the Big Corral was John B. Caitlin, who was a Civil War veteran, who had accompanied Sherman on his famous march to the sea. Caitlin would, had the requisite military experience uh, to supervise the construction of Fort Scalpahoe when the threat of the Nez Perce conflict appeared imminent. Two of his neighbors in the Big Corral, Lind Elliott and Warren Harris, joined the brigade of the 34th Bitterroot Volunteers led by this Captain Caitlin that gave chase to Chief Joseph. The volunteers had joined General Gibbon at Rye Creek and he, as he pursued the Nez Perce into the Sula Basin at Ross Hole, where some Indians had ransacked an abandoned cabin as they departed the Bitterroot. Um, Lind Elliott, Captain, uh, Caitlin's big crowd neighbor, was one of the several volunteers killed in the Battle of the Big Hole. The three fortifications came to be known locally as Fort Brave, formerly known for, as Fort Owen, where reportedly 258 women and children were cooped up within 10 or 12, uh, cooped up with 10 or 12 well-armed men to protect them. Um, Fort Sk Skedaddle at Corvallis, where a trial shot with a 45 caliber rifle had managed to penetrate only 10 inches into a solid wall. So pretty solid fortifications made out of earth. Um, and then Fort Run at Skalkahoe, where settlers actually ran for the gates of the fort upon its completion. It was reported that as many people sought refuge in the two hastily built sod forts as a number hunkered down altogether at Fort Owen. Both of the sod forts were built along similar fortification specifications. Their dimensions were about 100 square feet, 12 feet high, with a base of 3 feet thick, continuing up the fort holes about 4 feet, and from there gradually decreasing until there were only 18 inches at the top of the wall. Presumably rough timbers, and logs were framed up for the gate openings. Fort Skedaddle was said to have gotten its name from the fact that it was occupied mainly by recent Missouri transplants who had learned to get up and skedaddle at a moment's notice during the Civil War. A well was dug inside the walls to provide water in case of a protracted siege. And a small creek ran through the middle of Fort Run, which according to one report is said to have featured also a surrounding moat. One obvious drawback at Fort Run was the proximity of a large hill to the east where the Nez Perce launched their arrows toward
toward the sod walls just to impress the frightened settlers. Uh, the sod busters, that's where they got the name, the sod busters soon realized that the Indians could have just as easily cut off their water supply if they had really meant to do them any harm. Still, it should be kept in mind um, that at this time, General Custer's uh, famous, infamous last stand at the Little Bighorn had just occurred the year before, and there may have actually been some ample reason for taking extra precaution of building the sod forts, just in case some things somehow went haywire. Um, a fourth sod fort um, should be mentioned here, though, is really nothing more than a scattering of rifle pits dug in behind log and earth embankments. Um, fort Fizzle was located in Lolo Canyon, where the military laid in wait for the Nez Perce as they fled from Idaho into Montana. Father Ravalli had established the mission at Stevensville and had urged his friend Chief Charlotte to encourage the Nez Perce to pass peacefully through the valley. Um, while the two sides negotiated a way out of a full-blown conflict, um, Chief Charlo, with 20 of his warriors, met and advised the Nez Perce chiefs that if they um, meant to wage war in the Bitterroot, they would have to contend with the Salish, uh, who would align themselves with the settlers. The Nez Perce readily agreed to these terms of the truce and were granted permission to travel peaceably through the valley. Although these two tribes were on friendly terms, a time-tested protocol and one that still exists today, um, had determined that asking permission was still the polite thing to do. The cordial arrangement of free passage um, had uh, been going on for many years between the various mountain tribes. Historically, the Bitterroot Valley um, had never been a homeland to the Nez Perce Indians. However, they often traded goods and hunted bison with the Salish, and a number of intermarriages had occurred between the two tribes throughout the generations. While the U.S. military was considering its options in Lolo Canyon, the wily Nez Perce stoked up the campfires to make a good showing, um, while the women and children quietly circumnavigated the soldiers in the middle of the night, secretly entering the canyon below Fort Fizzle. In the morning, the Nez Perce warriors took to the ridge and passed by uncontested. After being outflanked by the Nez Perce at Fort Fizzle, the troops returned to Fort Missoula, leaving the scrappy Bitterroot residents unprotected and fending for themselves. For many years, many of the longtime settlers of the valley had dealt with the Nez Perce and other tribes passing through the regions on their way to and from their bison hunts and were on very friendly terms with them. Most of the people chose to remain on their properties and went unharmed and unmolested throughout the entire conflict. The Nez Perce made their first camp about eight miles south of Lolo near the ranch of J.P. McLean without incident. The next day, they moved further south and ate uh, and a little west of Stevensville making their second camp near the home of Chief Charlotte. Chief Looking Glass and some of his warriors visited Charlotte to show their good intentions and to ask where they could set up their camp. Charlotte pointed out a suitable location nearby and the Nez Perce people stayed in the vicinity of Stevensville for two days, where the local merchants kept their stores open and enjoyed a thriving business with the roving Indians. As the Nez Perce traversed the lower portion of the Bitterroot Valley, they stayed mainly on the unpopulated west side of the river, However, Chief Joseph, with a band of about 50 warriors, came to Corvallis and visited Fort Skedaddle. They showed a considerable amount of curiosity about the sod fort, but demonstrated no disposition whatsoever to molest any person or property. Even so, they were not allowed to inspect the interior of the fort. Reportedly, when the Indians asked if there any local merchants might be willing to trade for ammunition, their request was firmly denied. <laughs> 
Other reports seem to contradict this, relating that the Nez Perce passed the sod in log stockades that had been built to protect the women and children. And they called it the homes of several settlers, and some of the diary excerpts that we've um, found in our archives that supports this categorically. Um, and traded freely at, several, at local stores. Fort Skedaddle um, at Corvallis had been built in just 10 days, beginning on the 9th of July. 12 married men with their teams and six single men selected a site on the property of Charles Holly. The sod was obtained in the fields of Mr. Holly, Eliah um, Chapin, Jack Slack, and Joseph Hill Hall. A single opening was made on the east side of the fort and was closed in with a door that was made of heavy raw planks about six inches thick. More than a dozen Corvallis families, we just had a couple of great images here of some Nez Perce. More than a dozen Corvallis families lived in tents or built wooden shanties for temporary housing with others sleeping <laughs> under their wagons. Another dozen or so well-armed men joined the settlers and served as lookouts and, and guards. The settlers stayed in the fort with no sickness or complaints for a full week, according to one of the diaries, um, after the Battle of the Big Hole, which occurred on August 9th. An account in another narrative written by um, Edward Harden, who was a member of General Gibbon's command, states that on August 5th, they knew the Corvallis for three hours, 11 to two, had a nice visit at Sod Fort at Corvallis, passed a very nice earthwork about 10 miles from Corvallis. The hastily built um, for a sod work fortifications that Harden is speaking of were, of course, Forts Skedaddle and Fort Run. Just some compelling images of Inez Purse on the trail. Fort Skedaddle at Corvallis stood until the early 1890s when it was finally torn down. The site is located on the East Side Highway just north of town in the Rivali Electric Co-op parking lot. <laughs> Reportedly, when the fields of Fort Run at Scalpenhoe were plowed up in 1909, a good number of arrowheads, um, this is a, an image of the big um, holdout field, um, a good number of arrowheads and horseshoes were uncovered at the site. Unfortunately, they were all given away as souvenirs of battle that never actually occurred. <laughs> the fort sat in an open pasture near the corner of Kurtz Lane and Golf Course Road, again, just right here in our own backyard. All of the sites mentioned here are represented with interpretive signs, such as this one, um, or commemorative plaques today. Fort Fizzle is a Forest Service site located on US Highway 12 with interesting and informative interpretations. Fort Owen is a state park where the main barracks <coughs> are fully restored. The two sod forts are commemorated with solid slabs of local granite with bronze plaques attached, which proudly signify their proper place in the local lore of the Beirut Valley. And that's kind of a, a mad dash, the way the, the settlers dashed up and down the valley trying to um, decide what was the best course of action. And the Nez Perce quietly tried to make their way out of the valley to preserve their wooden families of men, um, men women, and children. Um, so um, thank you. And we'll go on to the, to the next piece of the Nez Perce story. talk about a tiny, tiny section of the Nez Perce Trail. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I am, my uh, piece is on locating the Nez Perce Trail in Carbon County, Montana. Uh, this is just, I'm gonna go through these first few slides really quickly, but this was a great visual of the treaties. So this would be the first 1855 treaty, and then the 1863 treaty. 
the gray is their like, <coughs> a rough outline of their traditional homelands. And then just a picture of Joseph and Howard. And then here is a map that shows the entire trail. Actually get it up here at the end. And that little tiny spot, that is my site. <laughs> Uh, so here is just a Google clipping of it. There is the Wyoming-Montana border right down there. The site kind of comes up onto here, pops off, pops back on. And uh, Jennifer Macy of the BLM, she is now with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She contacted my professor, Kelly Dixon, and asked if she had any graduate students who were interested in doing this as a thesis project. And she picked me. Okay. <coughs> And uh, I worked with Tim Urbaniak at MSU Billings. He's now retired. And I had a small crew of just a handful at Levi, Lindsay, Jim, Rob, Gabe. And we worked on this for two weeks. And we only focused on BLM land. So here on the left is a little image I got from BLM. The one on the right is from Tim. The red line is the Nez Perce Trail. The yellow is going to be BLM land, the white is private, and the blue is state lands. And we only focused on this section and then this section. So I will refer to this section as the southern end of the trail, and then this will be the northern section. And then that's just Tim's GIS work. Here is another visual. I like this image because it kind of shows you the terrain we were working with. And if you've ever been on BLM land, you're like, why? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> uh, first, I did archival methods, and there's so much information out there on this trail. Uh, it's a highly documented trail. I looked through journals, diaries, reports. I'm going to be doing interviews. I'm still going through articles. I'm still going through the military side of stuff, uh, books and maps. Book on the left here is Yellow Wolf. This was done by L.B. McCorder. He actually interviewed Yellow Wolf and other members who were on the um, flight. And then I looked through the Nez Perce Summer 1877 by Jerome Green. I actually went through all of his boxes uh, that are located at the Nez Perce National Historic Park in their archives collection. I skimmed through everything that he had. And then I also went through L.B. McCorder's Hear Me My Chiefs. And I only focused in on the section after when they left Yellowstone and Heart Mountain and between the Candy Creek Battle. And a fun little story that I found, or a section of it, is in S.G. Fisher's journal. His was great because he documented every single day that he was tracking the Nez Perce for the military. And when they got to, like they, when they came out, when the Nez Perce came out of Yellowstone, and got down here to Heart Mountain. Uh, Sturges was actually stationed here, and he thought the Nez Perce had snuck around him and went to the Seeking Water, which is now the Shoshone River, I believe. And so he thought they had bypassed him, so he left his station and headed down that way, but then the Nez Perce popped out out of Yellowstone after that. And in, Eshi's, in Fisher's journal, he said when they got to this site, the Nez Perce pulled a little trick on them. They took all of their horses and ran off in like different directions and scattered everything around and made it look like they were headed that way, but actually came up this way. Mm -hmm. So when they got there, they didn't know what to do. 
they thought they had lost them. But Fisher was able to find their trail and lead everyone back this way. And Howard came across Serge's trail at September 11 and Canyon Creek happened September 13th. From the maps that I looked at, this is out of Hearing My Chiefs by McCorder. So again, my little section right there. This one is out of Nesper Summer, and this is the one that Jerome Green wrote, and it was his uh, work that I've been kind of looking through to find any information on my section of the trail. And then the survey methods, this uh, survey was done in late May, early June of 2015. Uh, right there. Uh, stage one, we surface surveyed the already mapped Nez Perce National Historic Trail. So what we did is we followed with a GPS unit the actual trail and put pin flags every so often. And then when we came back with metal detectors, we were able to follow those pin flags in a nice long line and hopefully find physical evidence. Sadly though, the metal detectors we were given were Shonstead magnetic locators, and those locate ferrous metals, so like gold and iron, not brass or copper, which all the artifacts are made of brass and copper. So that was a little daunting and difficult. And here is um, Tim's picture. We GPS pinpointed every pin flag that we set down. The image on the left is of our southern region, so from the Wyoming border up, and then the image on the right is our northern section. And we covered about 180 acres in that two weeks, trying to find anything. We, we followed the trail. We had a couple of us going off on a other alternate routes that could be possible, like a possibility, like, oh, that way it looks easier. And then the image on the right, or on the left, excuse me, shows where our pin flags were that follow the trail. And if you can see it, kind of got a little bit of a drop. It's a nice little canyon area that we had to <laughs> drop down and pop back up. And the image on the right kind of shows another little section of the trail and from here and had to go back up to here straight through that and then this is just survey images of the crew that I worked with there's Lindsay Levi and Tim on the left they are lining up with the GPS of where our next spot is to go and then there's Levi and Lindsay again with our fantastic metal detectors we did find things it was very few but nothing related to the battle we did find a Kodak Linograph paper developer, probably for when they were finding mining plots for people to buy those areas. We did find uh, writing of Orma Schultz, Belfry, Montana. And I looked at the post office, like online at the post office, and they said that the last time the Montana, M-O-N-T abbreviation of Montana was 1943. And then in 1963, we switched over to just at T. Then we found a tip of a lithic tool we only found like three lithic evidence. And then Weatherman's draw is just on the other side of this. And there's fantastic rock art and all of that over there. It's crazy to have so much human activity on that side. And then you just pop over on this side of the mountain and there's not 
much that we could find on the surface. And now I am going to compare this to uh, the Lolo motorway. I'm cutting back on time a bit, but the purple is just an image of where the motorway is. Images online of the trail here in the roadway. And I'm showing you this because you're seeing physical evidence, like trail, rock cairns. Like you've got, like Milo said, historic, like archaeological evidence that the Nez Perce went through here. And then you come to my site and you're like, I really don't think this is the way they went. Because so like I said, where Tim's standing, it's straight. Straight up right into there where the trail goes. And then there's a little pin flag right there. Try to remember which way, I think it went down this way. There were sections of this trail when we got on it. I was like, yes, flat ground. I can totally believe the nest purse went this way. And then you get to a little section. And I'm retracting that statement. I don't think they went this way. And then this image, I just wanted to give you a view because the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone is just right, right down here. So we have the nest purse going up these really hilly, canyony areas when there's this entire flat river bed right next to it. And my thoughts are, I mean, just as a comparison, you've got, yes, nest purse were here at the Lolo Trail. Then you get to my section, you're like, well, it does go up this way, but it's also possible that they went on the flat right along the river, because like I said, they were here for like two days, maybe stayed a night in this area. They were trying to get to the crow. So my thoughts, I think they're in a hurry. They're trying to make it to the crow. They're trying to have, get help. And then they find out that the crow are now with the mil military and they, want, they now want to go to Canada. So in conclusion, um, I think I still haven't found anything at this time. Uh, there's no artifact evidence. I'm still going through archival works. Uh, further re research, I'm working on getting interviews with uh, tribal members. I think I won't be able to do private landowners and see what they have to say. Uh, more archival work. Uh, probably a reinvestigation of the site with, a, with the proper metal detectors. Um, also, there's an archaeologist in Wyoming, Dan Eichen. He did research up to the Wyoming border and he hadn't found anything either. So this kind of might just be an area where we just take our work to the Nez Perce tribe, show them what we have done, and say, where do you guys think the trail should be? I um, decided that you might be interested in how um, we're, we locally are starting to figure out how to um, do more with the Nespers Trail. We, when Tamar and I started working, Bitterroot Cultural Heritage Trust or Valley County Museum on um, with the Nespers Tribe, uh, we wanted to create a traveling exhibit because the museum was interested in um, 
learning more about interpretation and, and more about traveling exhibits. And the Nez Perce Trail really needed um, more interpretive material of high quality that could travel to remote regions because along the trail there's a lot of uh, different um, communities that don't have much um, access to interpretive information. This trail is only 30 years old in terms of being a National Strike Trail and has just the two staff members. And so it, 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 it's young in terms of trails. I mean, Lewis and Clark has 24 people and you know, it's a much different thing. So we were able to collaborate to create an exhibit. And from that, we started to notice there aren't any signs in the valley that you know indicate the auto tours. We, we saw a lack of um, our neighbors and friends understanding there was this wonderful trail here, this amazing story. We also noticed that um, there's two other national trails, the Ice Age Floods and um, the Lewis and Clark. And we're lucky uh, as a valley to have these three national resources. That the Ice Age is brand new and only the first National Geologic Trail. So we had a, we started to see all this substance, and we realized how little we knew. And and you can tell from our presentations, we are not. Um, we're not ashamed to say we, we're on a learning mode. We, we know it's really important for our community to teach itself more about these trails, and as we do so, we'll also be able to share um, these stories and this wonderful trail with others. So just as a way of saying, we, we have, have learned so much in the past three years. We have so much more to learn. And uh, we're learning a new culture. We're just so proud, like Tamar said, to be working with the Nez Perce elders and the tribal members. And we, you know, it's a, it's a six-hour drive, but we make it off and we're planning a trip in November because we're just so grateful for their attention. And building an exhibit together has really helped us understand a lot more about tribal culture. We just, you know, we're plain old ignorant. Um, we are. We also the past three or four years have seen our community gaining a lot more interest and curiosity. I mean, this full room is evidence that people are really wanting to know more about the Nez Perce Trail. Um, we also, <laughs> ways to collaborate, collaborate. I'm, I'm a notorious bad typist. Um, so we, we see ways that we can collaborate in our community, like Fort Owen is part of this story, St. Mary's Mission is part of this story. How do we work, you know, we're also busy focused on our mission, how do we take the time to work collaboratively and with archives at the museum to figure out how to better support this trail, learn more about it, and share it. Um, but momentum is really building, and we can hardly wait to see what happens um, next. So Tamar and I put our heads together and we thought, well, this is um, Mark Weekly, the superintendent of the Lewis and Clark Trail. This is Roger Peterson, the Nez Perce Trail uh, guy out of Missoula. And this is Dan Wiley, the deputy for Lewis and Clark. So they came for a visit this summer, and we thought, what can we do that would really kind of pull all this together? And we said, well, we really have three trails. Let's, let's just set it up. So now um, the museum has this post, and Ice Age, they're still deliberating on their own. They're glacially slow. And there we go. And so we said, well, let's just put this up. Let's, let's you know, get um, all the information together that we can. Let's have a great selection of books. Let's go get the National Park passport because um, we can get stamps for all these. So when people come, they might be drawn to the museum where they can see exhibits because there's a Lewis and Clark exhibit. We're getting a, um, the Nez Perce exhibit, and of course, we're fantasizing about the Ice Age Floods exhibit, which may actually be out on the landscape. We don't know yet. 
So this energy, when, when uh, the Lewis and Clark superintendent and his um, deputy came this summer, we had a two-day extravaganza. Maybe some of you were there. We visited um, all three communities, Stevensville, and Hamilton, and Darby. We went on a hike on the descent trail. <laughs> Brad is our smoke jumper who built the descent trail, which is the new Lewis and Clark trail on the forest. I don't want to go um, but, um, so now the Broward County Museum is really positioning itself as the hub of, you know, the thing. And you can see we have two stamps, but coming soon because we don't have the dang logo. But there's um, exhibits, passport stamping station, books, adults and kid books, maps, brochures, education programs. And we really are, um, have begun to talking to the foresters about getting an outfitter guide permit for the museum so that, um, we can actually go on the ground um, and force and, and do fee-based education, take people out there, because it expands the museum's walls and it's a great way to collaborate. And people want to go in the, in the footsteps. We do have on this forest, Bitterroot Forest, one located um, section trail. I think it's three and a half miles of um, Nimipu Trailhead at the top of the pass, if you've ever seen that. That's, you know, the, the actual trail. Um, again, I like to conjugate, collaborate, because I, ne I never know what, know what word to use, but um, we've done some collaboration already, um, and this whole table is full of auto tour brochures, the, the maps and park service stuff, um, and we did a map recently, you know, just all this tossing you know, 75 books, and, and we made a map of all of our heritage sites, and, and the trail is articulate, oopsie. Right, you know, we have these three trails and the Salish homeland as part of our. Um, another great, I mean, this is just kind of a magical thing that's happening. Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail never did way showing. The, the little pointy men that you see are were done by the foundation during the bicentennial. So, Lewis and Clark <coughs> National Historic Trail has created a way showing plan. Very nice. This bit. And um, they picked Montana as the state to actually do the science. They can't afford to do the whole thing. So in the la starting last summer, this past, and the next few summers, they're going to install beautiful way-showing infrastructure along the Lewis and Clark Trail. So if you think about, which our striking distance for our um, project's work is Missoula to Dillon, because both the Nez Perce Trail, Trail that area, and the Lewis and Clark Trail, so the Lewis and Clark Trail is co-signing. So we, next summer, this is actually the picture of the big hole. Uh, we're going to have, Dylan, we're going to have beautiful, brand new way showing signs that um, have all three logos on them where they're in the same place. So again, this is one of the reasons our community is getting excited because we've got wonderful things like this happening. This is um, information about the traveling exhibit town. Jump in if you want. This is. Uh, a shot from the current town collects um, powwow celebration. Um, it's been a labor of love and learning. It's opening in May. Um, they'll be traveling to communities who figure the life of the exhibit will be five years. Um, the museum's building curriculum and a trunk, and they will travel to these small, they'll uh, go to big communities too. Actually, we screwed up our nerve and called the Smithsonian. National Museum of American Indian, and they're interested, and so we have to, have to prepare a little proposal, but we're very hopeful that we might even be able to take our exhibit um, there. 
And I do have a sign-up sheet if any of your communities might be interested in this. Um, would love to know that. Um, the last piece is that we, we are working on an interpretive strategy for the Valley. And again, this was all stimulated first by the Mesbers. And I want to, she's not here, but Sandy McFarland was a visionary woman with a small staff and just a little bit of money. She's challenged cost sharing to leverage resources. And it's just made a huge difference, not only for the Nesbers Trail, but for all of the history and cultural heritage of the Valley. So we're actually launching into an interpretive plan and strategy for the area from Missoula to Dillon. And we're doing our first workshop on November 1 and 2. And if you are local and would like to come, um, you're fully welcome. It's all free. And 2016 is the 30th anniversary of the Nesbers Trail. And so um, we have a little birthday party celebration over here. We have um, cupcakes. You'll have to, at the end, come get one. And uh, pick up any of these brochures that you want and talk to either town or me. Do you want to? Hold up the yeah. Okay. So we, we are in consult or Sandy's doing consultation with five tribes um, about the exhibit. And we just thought we'd bring one. That's too big. Yeah. This is gonna be um, there's four pods or four panels each. That's too big. Thank you. So you might want to come and peek at this, but it's, it's this is an example of one of the panels that will be part of the traveling exhibit. And then as well, another posture um, challenge that, that Chris wrote will be have a permanent exhibit at the Ravalli County Museum as well. So not only will rural areas throughout the region and along the trail be able to have this for you know civic centers, schools, um, people that wouldn't typically get an exhibit of this caliber. School um, gym, bank lobby. Yeah. <laughs> it's not precious, but it's really important interpretive material and it, it um, there's four pods. The first pod just completely, in working with the tribal elders, we learned that the Nespers Trail is important to them and, and is still a living part of their genetic material. I mean, it's, it's, it's all the research that's coming out about um, traumatic events moving forward genetically through generations is, we believe it. <laughs> we, we've, we've seen it. We've seen it as, as we do the consultations with them, it just becomes so very clear to us how much it impacted not only the generation that lived through it, but future generations. Um, and the story continues to build and be passed from generation to generation. How, how strong it is passed from it's one to another. It's, it's, it's really a blood trail, a blood story. So our, our exhibit, the first four pot, pot, the first pot of four panels, pretty much deals with life before. And then there's, the next pod is about what what influenced, um, influences in the world were going on. <clears throat> Fascinating. Because it was like ships passing in the night. Uh, Indians were thinking one thing, the military and, and, and the United States government were thinking something else. And then settlers were on a different path. The third pod really deals with supply. And the fourth pod, um, the exile, and then the living culture, which is what we learned is the most important thing, is this is a story of 1877, the summer of 1877. And it's a really important story that surrounding that, there's a whole culture that lived before and after. So that was their major emphasis with the more that we talked with them is that they really felt that this was, yes, a very tragic moment in their history, but it did not fully tell their story, that they were a living culture a thousand years ago, that they're a living culture today, and that they really wanted the public to understand that um, 
they continue to grow and develop as a nation. Okay. Well, let's thank our presenters one more time. Mm -hmm.